You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so this morning, what I want to hold out for you, church, is three central points. I'm going to give them to you on the front end, and then we're going to work our way through them. Number one, we are going to hear from Jesus this morning the how and why that he turned suffering, sorrow, and pain into joy. How and why Jesus turns your suffering, sorrow, and pain into joy. We're going to explore this morning the fact that the Father loves you, and so you should talk to him. And lastly, we're going to talk about how your weakness in the faith and the circumstances of your life can do nothing to change either of point one or point two. And so let's jump right into it this morning. And so we kind of open up our passage this morning. If you kind of remember the way that this, this chapter has been building, if you've been with Mercy's Door, we've been preaching the Gospel of John for about a year now. Uh, last week, Pastor Brett preached for us that like there's been like this landing of a central truth on the disciples. They have come, starting to come, to terms with the idea that Jesus is leaving. He's talked to them about sending the helper, sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to testify things about him. He's going to bring to mind the things of him. And they'd be thinking to themselves, well, why do you need to send somebody to testify about you? He says, I'm leaving and I'm going to the Father. And so they're, they're starting to have this sorrow in their hearts over this truth. And here, Jesus continuing this theme as they start to kind of understand, you're leaving. He says it again here in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And if I said to you, you will see me no longer, what you're going to hear is no longer, right? Like that you're leaving and I'm not going to see you again, not for a long time, no longer, probably not again in my lifetime is what you're understanding there. But then Jesus comes in hot and he goes, and again a little while and you will see me. And so the disciples rightly are confused. They start talking, what is he talking about? What is he saying to us? They say, because I'm going to the Father. What does he mean by a little while? We had just started to come to terms with the idea that he said, he's saying no longer, and that I am departing, and that I'm going to the Father, that we're not going to see you. And now he's saying, and again a little while, and you will see me. So what does this mean, a little while? And in their confusion, they're talking to themselves, and Jesus, loving them, knows what, they, what is agitating in their heart, and so he brings it up. He says to them, are you asking yourselves about what I mean here? Well, let me say this to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. And so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. And so Jesus is telling them, I am leaving, but I'm coming back. And he doesn't really give them a lot of clarity on what he means by a little while, even though the agitation of their heart is, what did he mean by a little while? but he starts comparing it to something like childbirth. And before I can really give you a a real sense for for what he's saying here, I want to hold out to you that there's this challenge that I think we all feel when we think about the involvement of God when it comes to our pain and our suffering. See, Jesus is talking about taking our suffering and turning it into joy. And this is distinctly different, I think, from replacing suffering with joy. 
I want you to pay full attention to the word picture that Jesus is using here. See, a lot of times what we want to do, and I want you to forgive maybe the, the crude uh, word picture here, but we kind of treat the blood of Jesus Christ like it's, like it's morphine, like it's heroin, like it's this external drug that is applied to the pain and the sorrow in order that it changes the way that we interact with it, kind of numbs us to it or helps us escape from it, that Jesus is taking our pain and suffering and removing it from us and replacing it with something else or otherwise numbing us to it. But he's talking about something entirely different. He's saying that he's going to take the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and turn it into joy. That the pain and the suffering and the sorrow is going to be instrumental in the process of producing joy. That it's not about escaping from it. It's not about numbing to it. It's not about replacing it. That it's actually through it that joy is going to be produced. This is radically different from how we generally want to approach pain and suffering. Well, the reason why I think that we do this with Jesus is firstly because that's how we deal with pain and suffering in every other area of our life, is we just either try to flee from it, treat it, escape it, replace it, whatever. But then he uses this word picture of a woman having a baby. And what I know is that when a woman is having a baby and she's like screaming in agony from labor pains, somebody doesn't hear the screaming and run into the room with a baby and hand it to her. And then she's like, ah. No, it is through the pain of labor that the joyful baby is brought forth. Right? Somebody doesn't treat the labor pain by introducing a baby to the equation. A stork doesn't fly in at the final hour and replace the pain with a baby. The baby is produced through the pain. And Jesus talks about his departure this way. Jesus talks about his work in this way. But you see, we see God oftentimes in one of two ways. I've kind of pulled some illustrations in for us this morning, as if Jesus didn't use enough already. But I think that as I meet you guys, and as I think about myself, you can kind of think about which one is more like you. But we can sometimes see God like he's the maker of shoots and ladders, okay? Otherwise, we can see him like he is the maker and, and master of chess. But I'm going to start with the shoots and ladders analogy, okay? So we see God as the creator of all things. You've made a board game. You've made shoots and ladders. You were there in the beginning. You invented the whole thing. You created the bounds. You created the rules. You created all that. You created the end point. And what we know about shoots and ladders, hopefully you know this game. I don't know if it's played anymore, really. But in this game, you roll dice and you progress through a board, and sometimes you land on ladders and it propels you forward through the board game, and sometimes you land on shoots and it propels you backwards through the board game. But if you play long enough, everybody ends up at the same destination. And so in some way, a lot of us think about God this way, like he's created the world like a game of shoots and ladders. He was intimately interested in the beginning, setting the parameters and the bounds and the rules and all of that, and he's very intimately interested in the end, and if you play long enough, everyone gets funneled to the end and ends up where he wants them to be. But he's really distant and removed from the gameplay. Has no say or interest in the roll of the dice or how many ladders you land on or how many shoots you land on as long as you kind of end in the end. And so in this way, we make God removed, interested only in the beginning and the end, but disinterested in the process and disinterested in your life and disinterested in those latter moments and disinterested in the shoot moments. And we feel the most, if you are to think about God this way, like God is distant and removed in your moments of suffering. 
and you treat your feelings of loneliness before God in your moment of suffering by speaking platitudes to yourself like, well, he's sovereign over the end. He knew what he's doing, and eventually this works out for good. But he's always a God of eventuallys for you, and he's never a God of presence for you. So you get to a ladder, and then it's glory to God. But others of us don't see God so much like this absent and removed God, only interested in the beginning and the end, but we see him instead like he's the maker of chess, like he's a master of chess, where he's a highly reactive God, where rather than being absent, he's actually frantically scurrying all the time to respond with the perfect move to the thing that he didn't see coming. See, chess is this game that's all strategy. There's a million different moves that you can make, but God being the maker and the creator of chess and the perfect player of chess, he comes up against an opponent, and he's always recalculating. He's going to win, and we trust that he's going to win, but he's having to kind of re-strategize all throughout and respond all the time to the new variables that are thrown at him. And if God was that way, he'd still be worth all of our worship because that would make him an awesome God, but it's not the biblical God. He's not frantically responding and always reacting as if we are the primary authors and he's just constantly steering things back onto course. When we do that, to kind of stick with this analogy for a minute, I think that we think of the story of the earth kind of like this, like God made the earth. And then Satan was like, well, I'm going to make the sun and it's going to burn the earth. And then God's like, oh yeah? Well, I'm going to make the ozone layer. And now it's going to like trap all of that UV light and instead the light of that sun that you wanted to burn the earth, well, I'm going to use it to convert into chemical energy so that plants can grow. And then Satan's like, well, I'm going to poke holes in the ozone layer so that people get sunburns. <laughs> and then God's like, I'm going to make one of those plants an aloe plant. <laughs> right? Just this back and forth where God is like this master, like this master player of chess going up against sin, and he's always got a move for your move, but he never really knows what you're going to do next, and so he's constantly having to change his plan. But this is what the Bible tells us about God. Let me read you through some passages. Genesis 50, chapter 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that a numerous people should be kept alive as they are today. Proverbs 22.2, the rich and the poor meet together, the Lord is maker of them all. Isaiah 45.7, God speaking, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations 3.38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Habakkuk chapter 1 and chapter 2, just a summary so I don't have to read you Habakkuk chapter 1 and chapter 2, we read about a prophet who brings a word to the people of Judah, God's people, that he is going to raise up a wicked people, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to bring judgment upon them. And a charge is brought against God. How can you use a nation that is more wicked than Judah to judge Judah? And God's answer in chapter 2 is essentially, oh, because I'm going to judge them too. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 
And so when we get, come to see God as not just the one who's like playing the game or who made the game and spun it like a top and then stands back and watches it, but that he's the author of the story from start to finish, intimately interested in the details for you and for I, both in judging the wicked and in bringing his, bringing his people into the salvation of Christ, we come to rest on this doctrine. These all point to the one from Romans 8, chapter 28, or verse 8, 28. We know that for all who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So back to our passage as we kind of build this theology real quick, as we kind of get a sense for the might of God, what we're talking about is our Jesus, not talking about himself as some absent game maker or some like frantic game player, but as a father. He likens himself to like a mother giving birth. He's intimately interested in the details of your life in order to use the suffering of your life to bring about glory and joy. He has to be more powerful than you think he is in order to achieve what he claims he does here. He's never playing catch-up. He's never caught off guard. He's never absent, and he's never removed or disinterested. He is intimately interested in using suffering and sadness, sorrow and pain to bring about glory and joy like a woman who through suffering brings forth a baby. What a beautiful picture. Like what if when you were suffering next, what about when you, what if when you thought about the suffering that's in your heart right now as I start addressing this in you? the afflictions that you battle, sickness, mental illness, addiction, relational strife, poverty, whatever. Call to mind the suffering and the anguish of your life. And now here, as Jesus describes, his own departure the greatest anguish and moment of sorrow in the history of the world, that the Son of God would turn himself over to be killed. It says even this is just like a woman giving birth. And great joy comes on the other side of it. If he can use that, I mean, the greatest picture of this, guys, is the cross. Like, I know what I'm saying is hard to believe. It's not like I'm up here saying it with all the strength of faith as if I fully believe it. And gratefully, as we work our way through the passage, Jesus is going to be like, I've got that covered too. But, I mean, the logo for Mercy's Door has a cross on it. And we called the church Mercy's Door with a picture of a cross on it. Like the instrument of death used to crucify the Son. Like, if there's not a higher example of our God being able to take suffering and pain and anguish to bring about his good and glorious means, then that the cross gets worn on a necklace now, or that death means entrance into eternal life, I mean, we can count it as joy when we meet trials of various kinds because we can trust in our God who uses it to produce goodness. This brings us into point number two. Why would God do that? Well, because he loves you. 
truly, truly, I say to you, or he says there in verse 23, in that day, this day that is coming where you're beholding the baby on the other side of those labor pains, when you see him again, you will ask nothing of me, he says. You're asking things of Jesus nowadays, I hope. And he says that a day is coming when you behold him again when you will ask nothing of him. So for however good he is in the way that we behold him now by the Holy Spirit, it's going to be that much better and that you'll have, you won't ask anything of him on this day when you behold him. But on this day, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So he's starting to build an invitation into prayer, bold prayer. Verse 25, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And so now he's talking about this day that will come when they who have not yet asked for anything in his name, because he's right there, so they just ask him. So he's leaving, and now they're going to start asking for things in his name, the same way you do when you pray in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's hearkening back to what Pastor Brett taught for us last week in 16 verse 12. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to depart. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to come upon you, and you're going to start asking for things in my name. And it's going to be done for you. And why are you going to do that? Well, because that spirit who's upon you, this is the spirit that, that testifies to your spirit that you've received adoption as sons. You can now cry, Abba, Father. That this spirit testifies with your spirit that you are, in fact, a child of God. Why do you approach God, the, the throne of God, the Father, in confidence to ask for things in Jesus' name? Because the Holy Spirit is testifying the things of Christ to you, and the things of Christ are chiefly this, that you are now his son. That you belong to him. I mean, can I read this to you? I mean, we, I, I, I don't want to ever hold out to you guys that Jesus is not your mediator, that Jesus is not your high priest. I'll give you all the cross-references if you need them. Jesus is your mediator, and Jesus is your high priest. He stands in for you before the judgment seat of God. And here Jesus is wanting to limit how far you take that picture. He's saying, when you talk to the Father, let me just, his words, because this is a risky thing to say. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. See, some of you are not praying today or you're praying without confidence today because you're imagining that you approach the throne room of God and you're standing before him and that Jesus stands like a heat shield before you and God. 
that he's invited you into the house, but he said, don't look at me. That he's saved you from hell, but he said, don't talk to me. Like he's, his general disposition is against you, that he turns his face away from you. When I was a kid, I was an instigator and a troublemaker. I say was, but you know what I mean. And I, I was one of six. And we would always kind of try to read my parents. And I was normally not in good standing with my parents. And so if we wanted something, we'd pick a tribute to go and ask the question, you know. And we'd be like, I'm not going to ask like you ask. She'll probably say yes to you, you know. Because every parent has their favorites. They just don't tell you who it is. It wasn't me. And so you kind of, and Jesus is like, don't do that with me. Like, don't pray as if, like, I, you tell me and then I go and tell him. Like, hey, can you go ask Papa? The Father loves you. Go directly to him. When he says that he is your mediator, what he means is that he is the mediator that has provided you unfettered access to the Father. Not the mediator that you go to and say, can you go ask the Father for me? He has bought you direct access to the Father by his blood. This is life-changing if we believe it. It's prayer-changing, Jesus says, if you believe it. He says, I came from the Father and I've come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, they lied to his face, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Yeah, right. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, in five minutes, I'm going to be alone and you guys are going to be scattered to your homes. He answers them so truthfully and so honestly you don't believe. I know you don't believe because when they seize me, they don't know what's coming, not really yet. You're going to flee. You're going to ditch me in my hour of greatest need. You're going to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, last verse there, that in me you may have peace in the world, and you will... In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And so the flow here from point one to point two to point three is that Jesus is going to take your suffering and your sorrow and your pain, and he's going to turn it into joy. Why? Because by faith in him, through grace, the Father loves you. The Father loves you. But he doesn't hold back on the reality of their position. And this is important because you and I are much like them. Let me read back to you kind of what this interaction is like from their perspective. We don't understand. What is he talking about? Ah, now we know. Jesus, do you? You will be scattered and you will leave me alone. You'll desert me. The world will be rejoicing at your sorrow, he said to them. You'll, you'll have sorrow, but the world's going to rejoice as they hoist me up on a cross. You will have tribulation. 
I mean, he hasn't pulled any punches on describing the situation for us. He hasn't, he hasn't covered this thing in platitudes or false assurances. He hasn't said everything is going to be okay because you're not going to have tribulation and you are going to have certainty and you are not going to have any doubt and you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. You are going to be faithful and never scatter. You're never going to leave me. You're, it, it, these are none of the things that he says as confidence or why he wants them to take heart. In fact, he says, you will do all of those things. You are currently doing these things, and I want you to take heart because I have overcome the world because of what he's done. Not because of what we've done. And that's why we pray with boldness. You can run into the throne room of grace. You can stand before the throne of God the Father today with confidence because your key to mercy's door had nothing to do with you. It was him, always him. And he is using your present suffering in your life, your actual, real, present suffering and all the sufferings on the face of the earth from beginning to end to include a Roman cross for the Son of God to bring about your contrite repentance and worship of the King. The fact that you can say, not me but him, that was born through the pains of childbearing. Rejoice for anything that the Father brings into your life that brings you to the foot of the cross that you might call on Him. Take heart. You will have trouble, but He has overcome the world. Mercy's door. This is our banner flag. This is what we preach week by week. This is what we believe. This is, as we believe it, we believe it changes everything that we do. What Jesus wanted to change for his disciples here was where their confidence came from and what caused them to pray. And so I'm asking that now you will join me in prayer with confidence. That you would count your sin as rubbish. That you would count your resume as rubbish. That nothing you bring to the table gets you access to that room. But we're going to walk in there anyway with a swagger and a strut because we belong in there because that's our dad, Abba Father, because Jesus bought that room for us. So let's go in there together now. Father God, we're so like the disciples. I mean, what we got to say to you is we don't understand. We don't get it. We don't believe it, not all, not all the way. We don't really. We thank you, Lord, that it's not the strength of our faith that gains us access to that room. It's the object of our faith. And Jesus is the perfect object of our faith. I pray that you'd bring us to behold him here, Lord, that grow in us real boldness in prayer, to be expectant of you, audacious even, Father, because we so believe in the covering of the blood of Christ, that you have called us sons, that Jesus wasn't lying when he said that the Father loves you. May that never make us cavalier with sin, Lord, but let it make us all the more chase after putting it to death because we count Christ as worthy.
Lord, as we prepare as a church to fix our eyes on all that you've done last year, all that you're calling us into in 2023 as a church, Lord, I pray that our rally cry would be unchanged, that the gospel would be paramount, that Christ would be all. We ask that in his precious name. Amen. And so you guys continue to pray. We're going to distribute communion here and take it together, and then we're going to spend some time looking together as one body at all that the Lord has done for us. But for now, let's pray and take communion.